Space Radio. Roger, restart. Now I'm looking at the red. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, spacers. Welcome to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're part of the iHeart Radio Network. And I am really excited today. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, we, I talk a lot about pioneering and opening up the frontier and the space revolution. Um, and we have somebody here today who is like truly one of the heroes um, of the revolution. And he would probably blush and shrug and say, no, I'm not. But he is. And um, what, I, what I also like is um, that he made this happen. And as you know, I work with startups a lot, things like that. And um, having somebody on board who made it happen is, you know, not a billionaire. Started from the ground up and, and built something great is fantastic. And that is... Mr. Peter Beck. He is the CEO and founder of a little company called Rocket Lab. Um, you may have heard of Rocket Lab. Um, they've launched a lot of rockets, and uh, uh, I think you'll get my numbers confirmed soon, but more than 38, up near 40 probably, if you count the first couple. Um, and um, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let Peter tell his story. So, Peter, hey, welcome, man. Thanks very much. That's that's the, the kindest introduction I think anybody has ever given me. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> it gets worse from here, dude. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> no, but seriously, you you are you're you're a pioneer, and you know, look, we live in an age, Peter, where a lot of people are looking at this field and they're like, oh, it's the billionaires, and da, da, da. so it's so cool, so re- refreshing, and, and brings it down to earth for people to show, look, regular Joe like you and I get in there and do some stuff. And we're going to come back around to that. But um, let, look, let's start, let's start with, uh, with, with Rocket Lab itself. Um, in a broad window of time, roughly, what are you guys doing right now? Tell, you know, your, your window, your, your, your elevator, not a pitch, but conversation about somebody walked up, they, didn't, they hadn't heard of you, which means they're obviously not in our field. So what is Rocket Lab? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, we, we started off in small launch. Um, but we always had much grander ambitions than, than just small launch. And I guess um, the way I look at, you know, what, what, what does a large successful space company look like in the future? And it's a company that does launch also, but also builds satellites um, and may even own and operate their own satellites. So, you know, I think the, the unique thing about Rocket Lab is, yep, we have the electron launch vehicle. We, we do lots of small launch. Um, we're developing Neutron, which is you know a much larger Falcon 9 kind of class of, of rocket. Um, but we also build spacecraft um, and uh, lots and uh, of them and lots of uh, you know lots of components for them. So you think of us kind of as a one-stop space shop, whether you know a customer comes to us and they want us to design a spacecraft all the way through to launching it, all the way through to operating it on orbit. So we can really cover the full spectrum. Cool. So you're, you're basically soup to nuts. And I, I know you, mm. um, um, one of the great things, and, and I harp on this in my other life, and, and you know, I'm, I'm all about the environment and reusability. Um, I have the litany, I call them the four, the four R's or five R's, reusable, reuse, recycle, replace, repurpose, and resources, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the frontier mantra, right? Um, but you're moving towards reusability with your rockets from day one, if, if I understand correctly. Is that right? Well, not quite from day one. I had to eat a hat over that one. But um, you know, <laughs> I, originally I felt that you know a small launch vehicle it wouldn't wouldn't be possible to you know eat all the the margins and performance you have to eat to be able to do reusability. But um, we we were able to prove ourselves wrong and um, and you know follow a different approach for the electron launch vehicle. And of course, neutron is is reusable from from day one. So uh, it's a it's a ground up reusable design. So you know it, it looks a little bit different to a normal rocket because it's purposely designed to to go up just as efficiently uh, and safely as it is to design designed to go down. Um, so that that drives some interesting design choices and changes. But yep, um, and not not only that, uh, you know the way we go to orbit with electron. Um, we always park the second stage in a, an elliptical transfer orbit, basically meaning that it, it generally doesn't spend more than 12 days in orbit before it, you know, deorbits and burns back up. And uh, I think, in, you know, when everybody you know, talks about space junk, the natural kind of conclusion everybody draws is that it's dead spacecraft. 
that actually, you know, almost half of everything that's floating around in orbit is dead rockets, not dead spacecraft. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a, the industry's little secret that um, I don't think you know people know how many you know interstages fairings and and second stages are floating around in orbit um, that that you know aren't, aren't spacecraft at all. So we we kind of take that a little bit seriously and and uh, make sure we. We try and leave the, the minimum footprint possible. Yeah, and I want to make that clear for some of the listeners that didn't catch that part. So the difference between a spacecraft, which is um, the payload in a sense that's being carried up there, um, is, is what Peter's making, and the actual vehicle or the fairings, the stages, the parts of the vehicle that delivered it, two very different things. And um, so, yeah, very, very cool um, that you guys are you know focused on you know, because uh, it's very important to me personally to make sure that Sandra Bullock doesn't get hit by bits of <laughs> spacecraft or other stages, um, reference to a movie. Um, so you guys, you, you started very, very small. Um, first, how did, how did, um, I, I'm going to talk about your earlier life a little bit in a minute here, but what was it that like, you know, I heard you were over here. And the idea kind of sparked or something. Maybe that's the story. But what was it that clicked? And, and you said, you know what? I want to go build me a rocket. Well, yes. so I mean, I, I've, I've always been interested in space. I mean, one of one of my youngest childhood memories is standing outside, you know, with my father, looking at the night sky and him pointing out that all of those stars in the night sky, you know, have planets around them, most likely. And there could be somebody looking back at me. And for a young kid, that was just a mind-blowing kind of thing. And, uh, you know, also always, you know, come from a long line of engineers. So you know, engineering was in the blood. And naturally, if you mix space and engineering, you go for the hardest thing possible, which is the rocket. So even at school, you know, I was building rocket engines and, and, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until I, you know, started uh, my, my kind of engineering career that, um, that I was really able to, uh, you know, to, to build um, lots, of, lots of stuff. I've always kind of run two shifts in my life. There's the day shift and then the night shift. And, you know, during the day I would, I would work for either, either, you know, the government research lab at the time or a, a, an appliance manufacturer. And then I was just super lucky that, you know, during the night shift, um, they would let me use their tools and equipment and facilities. And I'd just be building rockets flat out. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, so you, you kind of went back to your dad and stuff. And by the way, it's interesting because we have a project in Earthlight. It's called uh, Dream Scopes. And we're, um, the goal is to put a telescope in every middle school on the planet yeah. because we believe that at that age, you go a little older. And if you go outside, all they're trying to do is run off into the bushes. But right about that age, right, we can get them. And um, I've seen people like see the rings of Saturn or the mountains mm-hmm. on the moon for the first time. You you recall that, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and it just boom, you know. Yeah. You and and suddenly, by the way, it's not just about space. The Earth becomes really relevant to you mm. at the same time. Mm. You know, it's like mm. the context. Um, but and we'll come back to that too later. But so it was your dad, uh, basically, that kind of helped you expand your world like that. Um. You know, you and I were talking just before you came on. You and I both have sort of a non-traditional trajectory here mm-hmm. um, in that we didn't go, you know, we can't rattle off our degrees from Harvard or Yale or, heck, I don't even know if we've either sat foot on them maybe as a lecturer, <laughs> which is ironic. Um, but um, you you, you kind of came up kind of middle class. So your dad was basically an engineer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, and, my father was. Yeah, my father was a director of the local museum and a geologist, and my mother was a teacher. And, um, I was born in a little town called Invercargill, where if you look at a map of New Zealand, um, it's the very, very bottom of the South Island. So the, the smallest smallest town you can imagine and the coldest place you can imagine. And um, uh, But great, great for you know viewing, viewing in the night sky. And yeah, my, my plan was always to go to university. It's just there's no university in New Zealand that offered any aerospace courses or anything that was kind of remotely relevant. Um, you know, there's engineering courses, of course. So I chose uh, a more practical career and started off as a tool and die maker and an apprentice. And basically, I wanted the hand skills to build the engines and build the um, you know, build, build the rockets that I, that, that, I, that I wanted to. So, you know, the plan was to go and get a trade so that I could I could physically build the things. 
um, and then uh, then I'd go you know, go to university. But kind of opportunities kept presenting themselves that I never really you know kind of kind of got there. And it sounds a little bit like you. Know, ultimately, kind of ironically, ended up as a professor of Auckland University, but um, it was just a, a you know a different path. Mm-hmm. So you actually ended up as a professor. Yeah. You say. Yeah. So, what what kind of department would that have been? In mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering, yeah. Right. So you were coming at it though from a practical, pragmatic approach, and I guess the school had the flexibility to say, you know, we need a professor who comes through that path rather than a bunch of degrees. Like you, you can actually speak it and talk it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I ended up having a lot to do with with Auckland University and um, the kind of you know, in the in, in slightly ironic, I would be supervising final year, <clears throat> excuse me, PhD students, but you know, still not not having having a degree myself. So, the university um, kindly made me an associate professor. So it was very nice. Yeah, I love the irony of that. That just makes me smile. Um, but the um, but you've all, and and I got to tell you, I, to me, it would seem if I worked for you in Rocket Lab and I was an engineer, um, the fact that you are a builder yourself, right? You, you know the tools they're working on. Um, so do you actually get to like, do you walk the floor? Do you hang out with the guys? And do you actually pull out, do the playing around with the parts and <laughs> do that kind of thing? Are you like very hands-on in the company? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still the chief engineer. So um, when the engineers can't kind of agree on a path forward, then I'm, I'm, I'm the moderator. Um, but uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, certainly especially with Neutron, you know, it's a big development project. Um, I'm deep, deeply involved in, in that as, as, as well as you know, other, other key kind of development areas of the company. So I think, um, I think it's really important for a, for a space company. And I think if you look at, at uh, the successful ones, um, you know, generally it, it has a, a very strong engineering leadership. And, you know, Rocket Lab is an engineering company first and foremost. Um, and uh, if you look through, you know, through the, all the ranks of, the senior folks within the company, they're, they're, they're all you know, very deep tech backgrounds or engineers. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's it's probably something you and um, uh, that guy with the X, whatever it's called, uh, that that guy, uh, kind of have in common. You, you're you down there in the trenches and, and, and um, you know, you're actually hands-on versus so many of the other companies that are layers and layers and layers and layers, you know, of, of corporate structure going on between them and the leadership. Um, you know, and um, no, I think that makes probably a huge difference as to the fact that basically you and Elon have driven so far, so fast, right? You, you know it, you speak it, you live it, you know, you're, and I've met you both um, and you are completely different personalities. Like you couldn't be more opposite, um, but, um, but you're in there and, and you're part of the team. You're, you're driving it. And you're a designer yourself, so that that's that's pretty cool. Um, so real quick, on um, you're um, you're flying the electron right now. Mm. The neutron is coming. It's like a factor of ten growth, right? Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, electron lifts three hundred kgs to low Earth orbit. Uh, neutron lifts thirteen thousand kgs to low Earth orbit. So uh, yeah, no, it is significantly uh, significantly larger. Well, I have yeah. to say, I'm I'm apart from the infrastructure piece, I'm very much enjoying working on a larger rocket. Uh, small rockets are incredibly difficult because uh, every gram matters on a small rocket. Like you end up making crazy trades, like I'm going to have you know two pressure transducers instead of three because you can't afford the weight of the third pressure transducer. Whereas on the big rocket, like the weight of a pressure transducer is just totally irrelevant. Um, so in, in a lot of respects, it's, it's much easier to build a bigger rocket. Um, the challenge is, of course, just all the infrastructure is, is much larger and the handling is much larger. But actually, fundamentally, the design of it is, is far more forgiving. Wow, cool. Well, I'm going to come back in and we're going to talk a little bit about Electron um, and some of the, the other projects you're taking on. Um, all right. So, listeners, you are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. I am Rick Tumlinson, or at Rocket Rick on, I'm going to say the Twitter, the X, the whatever you want to call it. That's where I am, at Rocket Rick. And uh, you're listening to the Space Revolution, and we will be right back. 
Okay, spacers, we are back with the space revolution. I am talking to the founder of Rocket Lab, one Peter Beck, who is speaking to me live from the land of the Kiwis. Um, and um, by the way, a place it's on my list. I haven't made it yet, but I, I intend to get there. And I know it's very cliche, but I saw Lord of the Rings. And I was like, I want to see that. <laughs> that is one of the most beautiful places on earth. So you, again, you were, you were a gearhead and, and, and I have to ask you about this because I, I'm, I am myself, I'm a car guy. When you were younger, uh, I was reading in your resume that you somehow, what was it? You like put a big engine or something in a, in a mini Cooper or what, what was that story? I, I have to hear that story before we get back to the electron. What, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, I've always always kind of had a passion for, for speed and, and, of course, engineering as well. And um, uh, the, the most I could afford was a flat-out old Mini um, and uh, and set forth to rebuilding it. And, you know, if you're going to rebuild it, you may as well rebuild it um, a little bit better. So I ended up, you know, turbocharging and injecting it. And, uh, and you know, it, it uh, for, for a little Mini, it, it went pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's not much. I mean, you know, it's, I'm looking at my closet. I could probably keep one in there. I mean, the real <laughs> mini, not, not yeah. the thing we see now that they call uh, the mini. It's that's not the. You could actually probably put an original mini in the mm. current mini. But yeah, very very cool. Um, so look, okay, I'm, I just want to ask a couple more questions about the the electron and and um, and your growth as a company, right? Mm -hmm. And and as you, you've been growing up, um, and I know the scaling and everything is pretty large. You you're actually the electron. You're using like a cluster of motors, right? You're not right. depending on one or two big motors. How many? What is it? Nine or? Yep, yep. The, the magic ratio is you know nine on the first stage and one on the second. If you want to keep the the same engine on the first stage as the second stage, that's pretty much the magic number. Oh, okay. Very cool. And so you're 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 launching fairly large payloads. You're also now, um, and it, it started with the. Um, when you're flying now, but as you're moving up into the neutron, the um, the upper stage stuff, the stuff that happens mm. in space. Um, I've had a couple of friends of mine comment on how brilliant they thought you guys were in terms of the acquisitions of, of other companies that you brought on board. You brought on Sol Aerospace and Sinclair. Um, what did you see in them? Why did you go for them in terms of extending your reach and your capability? Yeah, so we, we, we felt it was really important to be able to build, build satellites and spacecraft as well. And, you know, we set out to build our first satellite uh, and you know, it rang up Doug Sinclair and said, look, we need some reaction wheels. And Doug said, that's great. Um, come back in nine months and we'll have some reaction wheels for you. We're like, well, we don't have nine months to do anything. That nine months is a crazy amount of time. So, you know, we, we, were, we were lucky enough to... Um, to be able to acquire Doug and his company and, and, and grow that as well. Um, and then, you know, basically if you lay a, a satellite out, you know, on a, on a table, all of the long lead time expensive items, we, we kind of systematically went about securing uh, for a vertical supply chain. So, you know, solar is a great example. Um, you know, solar is, is probably the most expensive, longest lead time item of, of a satellite bus. Uh, so, you know, there's only three companies uh, in the world that produce you know, the space-grade solar cells. There's, um, you know, Boeing, Spectra Lab, uh, there's a company in Germany, and Solero. So incredibly unique, uh, unique capability and asset. Um, so we were able to, uh, you know, through a process, be able to acquire those guys. Um, we acquired ASI, which, are, you know, they, they build satellite software, which was, which was great. And then uh, we're lucky enough to acquire PSC. Um, they're a separation systems company. Um, you know, once again, one, one of the longest lead times and, and, uh, and hardest items to secure being the separation systems between the, the rocket and the spacecraft. Mm. So it was, it was really, really as simple as that. It's like, okay, what are all the bits that, that have long lead times that are really expensive and how can we, how can we bring those in house? We went on a, on a bit of an acquisition strategy. Um, and then in parallel to that, we, we, we built a whole lot of stuff organically. So, you know, spacecraft propulsion systems, spacecraft radios, spacecraft batteries. So really now when it comes to, you know, to, to building a spacecraft, we, we pretty, have, pretty much have everything we need under one roof. So you, you, you had started the company, what was it, 2006 or seven, I think, right? Yep. And, uh, right? and you were going through the, the various growth stages, and then you went into the SPAC world. 
Mm-hmm. And um, now again, you know, my, uh, my, my, my daytime job has recently, I've changed it recently, but has been to be an evil venture capitalist. And um, um, well, hopefully not one of the evil ones, but um, you know, the joke for a couple of years there with, with my friends and I was, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a SPAC, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of moving into the shell of another corporation, putting yourself in there and sort of eating it from within and becoming that company in a sense, and then using that, that legal framework to raise new capital by being able to be a, become a publicly held company. It's sort of a shortcut. Um, and, um, you know, the joke was that you're either doing that because you've got an incredible company idea that needs funding, or your idea completely sucks and it's an easy way to get a lot of money. Yeah, um, yeah. It's one of the two, right? There's nobody in the middle there. Uh, yeah. Obviously your idea was great, but w- when did you decide and what made you decide to, to go for that, that sort of path? Yeah, that's a great question. So our intention was always to take this public, uh, this, the, the company public uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one, one reason was obviously access to capital is a, is a publicly traded company. But, you know, a strong personal reason for me is that, you know, I'm trying to build a long-term enduring profitable space company um, that, that, that well and well and truly out survives me. And I think one of the challenges, um, you know, with some of the space companies that are, that, are, that are owned by billionaires is you have to ask yourself the question, when the billionaire, you know, ultimately leaves this earth, what happens to those companies? Um, and, you know, it's really important to me that the, the mission of Rocket Lab is far longer than one person's lifetime. So one way to make a company enduring is, is to, to make it public. And, and that creates an, an enduring, uh, you know, forcing function for a number of reasons. One, you know, you have to be focused on actually being profitable um, rather than just doing cool stuff. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of people in the space industry do cool stuff and then, you know, try and invent a company around cool stuff and then the company <laughs> fails. Um, if, if you if you actually have to be profitable, um, you can doesn't mean you can't do cool stuff, but you have to do cool stuff that's profitable. And that's the the you know personally that that was you know the strongest way to make an enduring um, a space company is is, is to, to make a public one. Um, but like I say, we were actually you know uh, we had the revenues and everything to, to to become a publicly traded company, and that was the original plan. For the longest time, you know, we saw the the, the rise of the SPAC craze, and we we just just said, talk to the hand, we're not interested in following down that path. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't until we, we actually sat down and, and met with the guys at, um, at Vex Capital that, um, that, that we actually were, you know, our, our mind was kind of slightly changed on it because, you know, Alex and his team there um, were, were very, very different in, in, in what they wanted to try and do with their, you know, their SPAC vehicle. And you know that when, you know, when, when the, the SPAC team are quoting you back orbital elements, that they really understand, you know, what what uh, you know the, the company that you've built and, and what you're trying to achieve. And I'd say the one the one positive about um, about a SPAC is, you know, we're able to raise a quantum of capital that if you went through the traditional IPI IPO process, you wouldn't have been able to raise. And why that's important is um, is it gave us the funding runway and funding opportunities to take on a really big project like Neutron. Um, it also gave us the ability to to make um, acquisition. So we did three acquisitions within four months, um, within within six months of becoming public. Um, and we felt that was really important to be aggressive there. I mean, that is a definition of not fun. Um, newly publicly traded company, four acquisitions, rolling them all up, um, that's a lot of work. But, you know, we, we felt that those acquisitions were going to be critical for our future and, you know, that, that's proven to be true um, and, and where we want to go. So, uh, so yeah, I, I look. I agree with your your summary perfectly. I think either you have a great company or you have a really bad company. Um, and and for us, we're already in the processes of getting ready to go public. Um, so uh, you know the the the, you know, the the SPAC opportunity gave us, uh, like I say, a larger quantum of capital to do more things and be more aggressive. Um, and uh, and was, was kind of you know worked has worked out um, worked out well for us. Yeah, I mean you already. I'm presuming. When you did the SPAC thing, you already had your, for lack of a better word, trajectory lined out, right? You knew um, that you were going to be going for the Neutron. You mm-hmm. probably already had your eyes on these acquisitions and we're mm-hmm. dealing with the supply chain. 
we'd actually we actually made we'd we'd made you know we, we acquired Sinclair before we went public, so we'd already started down that down that road there. Yeah. Right, right. So you were basically already going for the end to end service mm-hmm. model, and um, and then needed the, the financing for it. Um, so you've you opened then just before that or in that range, you you became also a U.S. based company and started working a little bit with the defense department. Um, you know, I work a little bit with space force on this and that and the other, but you're, you're doing some things in that realm. Um, tell us how that fits into what it is you're, mm. you're focused on. Well, we actually became a U.S. company in 2013 when I raised the very first piece of uh, capital out of Silicon Valley. Um, so we've been a U.S. company uh, since 2013. We have the New Zealand as a, as a subsidiary. Um, you know, fast forward today, we have around about 1,700 staff, of which, you know, 1,100 of them are in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, New Zealand is, is pretty much primarily focused around the electron launch vehicle, uh, primarily, you know, because of the private orbital launch site that we operate down here. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people think we have, um, you know, operations in New Zealand because pizza kiwi. Um, that's not the case at all. Like we, we've been a U.S. company um, for, you know, let's say, for, for, for a decade. Um, the only reason we have any operations in New Zealand is because we saw the challenges with, uh, you know, launching frequently out of kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the historical U.S. launch site. And for a small launch vehicle, um, we wanted our own, you know, control of our own destiny there. Um, and you know, look, it. it, it there's a lot of things when you launch a rocket that is that doesn't it just doesn't matter the size of the rocket. For example, um, you know if you go to a, a, a launch range in the US, um, it doesn't matter if you're launching a Falcon 9 or an Electron. The cost to do it is about the same because you need the same flight safety team, you need the same tracking trajectories, and you need you know the, the same mission control folks. So you know the only way that we could bring a small launch vehicle to market that would be competitive from a price perspective. Was to also own the launch range, uh, because you can't sell a rocket for you know seven point five million dollars and have you know three million dollars of range fees or four million dollars of range fees. So um, we had to find a way to uh, you know to bring a small dedicated vehicle to market um, affordably, and that that the way to do that was to own your own range. Hence the reason that's really the only reason we have any operations in New Zealand at all is because of that launch. Right, and from what I recall, your um, your electron rocket is primarily uh, going for like sun synchronous type uh, orbits and things like that. Is that correct? Or yeah, we tend to do the weird orbits. So the orbits that you can't get on like a ride share. Uh, you know, people come to us for a dedicated ride because they have like specific timing, like LTAN timing that they need to be, or specific trajectories in orbit. Or they have a timeline that that they need to meet. Um, that those those are generally you know, the majority of their customers. Oh, cool. So, as you move into the neutron here, mm. you're going to be going big, um, mm. and like you, you, you're the one who mentioned it, Falcon. You're moving into that world, um, and you're going to be launching a lot of different kinds of payloads, obviously satellites and stuff like that. Is there any plan? Is there some little drawing in the back room, you know, of your own little human-capable capsule at the top of that? Yeah, the, the, there is. Yeah, um, you know, we we are designing Neutron to be human-rateable. It won't be human-rated straight out of the chute, but right. uh, you know, but we're certainly designing it to be human-rateable. Um, and that that comes that you know that falls into like what are the safety factors of your tank um, and and stuff like that. Uh, which are big deals to go back and change. So, yep, no, I mean, um, you would be, we'd be remiss, you know, not not to have a vehicle that would be capable of it um, and go to all that trouble to make a rocket that wasn't capable of it, for sure. So that's that's cool. So you've got it, you've, you've designed it out of the gate mm. so that you can move in that direction after you get your, you know, your heritage, your flight heritage, and all of that under your, your belt, I guess, and you can kind of move in that direction. That's that's awesome. So it's you are going to be coming uh, one of these human um, human movers, human lifters. Well, look, uh, we're going to wrap up this section. We'll be back in a minute, uh, Spacers. Um, talking to Peter Beck, you're listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeart Radio Network. I'm Rick Tomlinson, and uh, you are listening to the Space Revolution. We'll be right back. 
All right, Spacers, you are back at Rocket Rick on the X Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, this is the space revolution. Uh, I've got a leader of the revolution, although he was he's a very humble guy and he would like shrug and say I'm not. But he is uh, as one of our guests today. And that's uh, Peter Beck, founder of Rocket Lab. So, uh, Peter, in the last section, we we're kind of working our way up. And right at the end, I hit you with the idea of human capable. Uh, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But one of the things you're already capable of and you're moving into is uh, beyond cislunar space. You're actually moving into mission profiles. Uh, from what I understand, you're working on one uh, right now for moving in the direction of Mars for NASA. Can you tell yeah. us a little about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I've going back to to some of my youngest childhood memories. I've always been fascinated with with other planets and and uh, you know the question about life. And uh, so naturally, when opportunities present themselves for us to play in that world, we we will jump at them. Um, so we have uh, two missions for NASA uh, called Escapade, um, and these are two spacecraft. Uh, that, that will be operating around Mars, launching uh, next year. And uh, they'll be me measuring the ionosphere um, of, of Mars. So it's really, uh, really fascinating mission, actually. Uh, so those spacecraft are coming together as we speak. Um, and uh, like I say, it'll be launched in, in 2024. And then we have uh, the capstone mission that we launched um, to the moon last year, which was which is a kind of first foray, you know, outside, you know, the Earth's gravity well and, uh, that was that was a that was a really difficult mission to do, um, but uh, it was quite cool because what we what we ended up creating there was uh, you know a spacecraft you know that launched on uh, electrons that we can basically go anywhere in the near solar system with. Um, mm. So we can go to you know Mars, we can go to the Moon, we can go to Venus, um, you know all by using a, a small rocket. And um, uh, it's, it's a pretty unique capability for some tens of millions of dollars. You can actually go and visit another planet. It's pretty cool. I, I love that. And um, then there's this this whisper, this Venus whisper thing. Do you care to touch <laughs> yeah. on that a little bit? I know it's kind of something in your head. Oh, well, look, I think we'll, we'll completely blow out the rest of your time if we go too deep. But, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have a, a real passion for Venus. I think Venus is, is, a, is a very close analog to, to Earth. But also, it's one of the few planets in our solar system where you know there is probability that that there could be life. And I think um, you know, for me personally, that's one of the biggest questions to answer: is like, are we the only life in the universe, um, or, or or not? Right. And if you want to take a purely scientific approach, right now there is no evidence to conclude that there is any other life other than us in the universe. Correct. And I think you know, if you if you can go to go to Venus and uh, and and Perhaps in the atmosphere, there's, there's this interesting region. If you can prove that there is life there, then I think that's that's an you know you answer two two very important questions. One, yep, no, there is other life in the universe other than us humans, so that's interesting in its own right. But I think also if you found it in the clouds of Venus, you can pretty much you know surmise that uh, actually life is quite prolific because if life can you know survive in those kind of circumstances, then chances are you know life is prolific throughout. Universe, and I think I think as a human species, that's an important question to answer. And hopefully, in my lifetime, uh, it, it will be answered. And even better, if we can have a, a small role in answering that, that would be a useful, useful, you know, use of of time on the planet, in my in my perspective. Yeah, and just to be clear, we are not talking about the surface of Venus. We are we're I mean, you know, the acid bathed. Uh, surface where what the, the Soviet spacecraft that landed there landed lasted, I think, a few hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're talking about the upper atmosphere where there could be potential sort of floating clouds of bacteria or whatever that could be up in there. Um, yeah, and there, there are a lot of advocates looking, uh, you know, at that, at a, at that as a potential uh, place to go. Um, you know, and then we have people looking at Mars. I, I share your, your point of view. I mean, what we do, what I do with my Earthlight, the nonprofit that I have, um, our, our perspective is um, basically we, you, you have to bet on the cards you can see. And the cards I can see say we're it for now. Um, <laughs> not talking about UAPs and UFOs, whole different gig. Um, you know, I, and I'm gonna, we're going to stay away from that one. 
um, even though I get asked every time I speak about it. Uh, but um, oh, by the way, one of the great, uh, uh, what was the, there's this, uh, you know, area, what is it, Area 21 people talking about? And, uh, you know, and I tell people, uh, you know, it's, it's not Area 21. You have to watch out for it. It's Area 29. And then you just walk away. And they're <laughs> like, like, what, what? Uh, but anyway, um, so look, I, I, I love what you're doing. You're, you're, you're kind of, you're growing outward is, do you have any aspirations yourself to go or is it enough for you to be a person who is helping this happen? What do, what do you want your personal Peter Beck legacy to be in, in space? Well, I mean, firstly, I, I have all of the knowledge of the systems, but none of the courage to be able to ever climb aboard uh, a, a rocket. So I have intense, you know, immense admiration for an astronaut. I think that is that is a very special um, quality to have. Also, have the knowledge and then also the courage, um, because you know, I don't think spaceflight is, is always you know, incredibly, incredibly challenging. Um, so I, I have no intention nor desire to to leave this planet, uh, perfectly fine planet. Um, and then you know, for, for for the for the future. I mean, it's not it's not really for me. It's it's not really about creating legacies. Um, you know, I want I want to create a, an entity, you know, a company, an organism, if you will, that goes on um, and and you know continues the work and, and does uh, you know does advances the you know the art and advances humans' ability to you know explore the universe. I think that would be a, that would be a you know a worthy use of your time on the planet, but. Um, yeah, I'm not not really trying to trying to build legacies other than just um, I guess I was I was always taught as a child to to be useful and make sure you um, you know when when you leave the planet you you create a small increment forward for others to 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 keep pushing. So that's that, that's really the goal. And I just think it's I'm incredibly lucky to to get to do the stuff that I just find incredibly enjoyable and I'm incredibly passionate about it. It's it's um, it's it's rare that you get to, to to do those things in such a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you and I share that. I I wake up sometimes like, what the hell, you know? Um, mm. Or like this morning, I'm I'm going to be talking to Peter Beck, who's building rockets for rocket, you know, with a rocket lab, or um, you know, or, or dealing with Space Force or NASA or whatever. And and you know, just growing up as an average kid to be able to be a part of this is, you know, my my inner twelve year old flips out every once in a while. Um, so you're, um, you know, you, you've done the, uh, the DOD stuff. Um, what, what are your feelings in in terms of this, the international competitions that we're seeing, uh, in in space and, um, you know, what, what do you, what would you like to see? What would you think is pragmatic that, that we can do out there in terms of people working together, um, that kind of thing? What, what, where do you go on that? Yeah, no, it's it's kind of it's kind of an interesting question. I think um, you know uh, if if we take take China for example, you know they are really right. moving fast um, and they are they are pushing hard. And um, you know I think uh, when when there's a Chinese flag planted on the moon, I think that that will inevitably happen. Um, I think that's that's we, we're going to see a a, a a new space race um, because right. you know it sounds a little bit kind of you know. Pessimistic, but um, you know, humans are motivated, um, you know, fundamentally by, by pretty basic things, and you know, re- resource utilization is is and in, in land ownership and things like that are, are, are kind of key to that. So I think I, I think we're we're on the you know the verge of of, of an interesting time um, when you know one one nation is making huge advances you know in, into into our solar system. Um, and uh, and you know I, I just can't see a world in which the U.S. gets left behind in that. Um, so uh, you know, the, the, don't get me wrong, the U.S. is, is making you know huge advances in, in into space and is you know unquestionably the leader uh, in in the, in the space community. But uh, you see a lot of emerging nations and emerging space programs uh, really starting to, to to gain traction and momentum. And um, I think I think it's important for everybody on the planet, um, and for the safety and and um, you know and for the fairness of everybody on the planet that um, you know that 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 it's kind of done done with with respect to each other and fairness. And 
I think the 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 challenge as kind of the mid the immediate and midterm challenge is going to be you know traffic management in orbit because we we are not going to stop putting stuff into orbit because it creates huge you know values and prosperity and opportunity down here on Earth. So to think that we're just going to not put the internet into space is is I just think is not not reasonable thing to think. Um, you know, uh, the, the US will do it, then China will do it, then other countries will do it. And I think space traffic management is, is something that um, is the one thing that we're all going to have to come together with, um, you know, as, as, a, as a planet to sort out. Because, you know, there's no, there's no the, the trajectory of a spacecraft is set. It's going over that country no matter what. Um, and, you know, the... The ability to manage that traffic is going to become fundamental to the safety of all of the infrastructure in orbit. Um, and um, you know, I, I just hope that, uh, that that everybody can can get together around a table and agree uh, on a set of rules, and and then those rules are followed. Because as a human species, if you we're not particularly good at um, planning forward, uh, we generally wait until things get into a terrible mess. And then, right. then go back and retrospectively fix it as kind of like the the, the human human way of doing things. So um, I just hope we don't get into that scenario where we create a huge mess up there and then have to go and fix it because the the, the cost of that fixing is 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 really really hard. Um, so yeah, that, yeah. That, that would be that, that that would be my hope is is the number one thing is is let's let's come together as you know as everybody as all countries and and utilize the resource. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I one of my things I'm pushing on constantly is this idea of um, with Earthlight, we have these principles about you know protecting the mother world, expanding the domain of life, and um, evolving humanity, uh, and these kinds of things. And it's it's like we're at that moment right now, right now, mm. with people like yourself um, in our community that we have a, a moment to sort of stop. And, you know, I watched, uh, I, I forgot, History Channel, whatever, they have this series of, like, the men who made America, you know, and it's it's about the Carnegies and the Morgan and all of these people who kind of stood out there and put their arms on their hips and, like, I want to own it all, you know, and we're going to go, you know, and it was very cutthroat. And, uh, and God forbid you were indigenous, you know, Luckily, we hope so far, we don't have to deal with that one out there. Uh, but it was all about take, 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 let's go. I must dominate. I must control. And, you know, it's plus, plus, and this gets into the orbital debris type thing. Use it and throw it away. Use it and throw it away. Use it and throw it away. And mm -hmm. leave, let's just trash the place. It's all ours. Just use it. So we have that moment right now, you know, where we, people like yourself, uh, can be leaders in this where you can say, you know what? Hang on. And I, I love what you just said. And the, I'm just responding to it because it was so perfect that we just need to sit down and say, hold it. We got a new chance here to try and do something right, to do something different, to take this frontier on in a different way than we ever have in the past. And, you know, I, I think it's people like you, Peter, because you're very well respected in the field and um, who can who can kind of push for that and, you know, and have the opportunity to be that voice that says, you know, and by the way, starting with reusability, which is green, you know. So, I mean, I'm just encouraging you. I guess it is uh, to to keep to keep working that one. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I mean, I I, I certainly hope that um, that's that's the trajectory. I was lucky enough to to speak at the UN um, on this, and and um, yeah. you know, I think there's there's you know, I think everybody accepts it, but. Um, but also, you know, also realistic that the last thing that everybody in the world agreed on, I think, was in 1972, um, the Outer Space Treaty. So it, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but uh, look, I mean, it, it's, it's not for a lack of knowledge. Um, you know, some, some, sometimes, you know, these things happen just purely through ignorance, but I don't think there's, there's a lack of knowledge in, in, in this area. Is, is it just needs to be, you know, uh, uh, the will. And unfortunately, it's, it needs to be the will of governments. Um, uh, you know, individuals can can of course um, you know promote it and then all the rest of it. But I think one government is just going to have to take a leadership position 
and uh, and and try and corral all the other governments and all the other countries into into just a basic set of rules because it, it's not actually as hard as it sounds. Um, you know, it, it, it's relatively you know basic set of rules would would solve most of the problem, and um, and it, and it's really just about information sharing, like uh, knowing where everybody else's spacecraft is 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 fundamental to to avoiding any issues. And at the moment, the way it works is, you know, someone will call up someone else at two o'clock in the morning going, hey, I think there might be a conjunction here. Um, we've got no propulsion. You need to move your spacecraft. Otherwise, mm. we could both lose our stuff. Um, and that, 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 that just doesn't seem, you know, like with, with, with AI and uh, so much compute in the planet um, and so much, you know, the planet is the smallest it's ever been with respect to the ability to communicate. It just doesn't seem like that it should be a place that we're at. I agree. I totally agree. And this is a good point to stop uh, right now. We're going to come back in a minute, move into the last section. I am with Peter Beck. You are listening to The Space Revolution. I am Rick Tumlinson, your host, and we will be right back. Hey there, spacers. Uh, Rick Tumlinson here. You're listening to The Space Revolution. I've got Peter Beck, um, founder of Rocket Lab. I... Uh, in the last few months, I actually even said on, I think it was Yahoo News, that uh, Mr. Musk needs to pay attention because a certain rocket lab is nipping at his heels. Um, <laughs> I heard a, a, quite a few comments on that one. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing that somebody like yourself, Peter, you can roll in with sort of just this determination, this, this force of will, this vision that you had in your head. Did, as a kid, did you ever think, you were going to be flying rockets to Venus. Not to sound arrogant, but it, it seemed like you have to believe that it is possible, right? Otherwise, you never try. Um, so no. I, I, I was determined to, to, to work in the field. Um, now, whether, whether or not, you know, that, that specific, you know, thing probably, probably didn't cross my mind, but I was determined to work in the field. And the original plan was, you know, the original plan was to go and work for NASA or um, you know, one of the larger space companies. Um, so probably the, the the bit that is the slight slight deviation is is starting my own company, um, and uh, that that's probably the, the largest deviation from the plan. Yeah, and you know, and this last section here, we're gonna we I've got a couple of fun questions to ask you in a minute, but kind of aimed at this this bigger picture um, to perhaps some young people. Some mm-hmm. others out there in the world who are like, you know, they're trying to decide how to get into the field. I mean, it looks part of the turnoff of these superhero billionaire types is it doesn't look like anything that relates to somebody, you know, sitting at home staring at their homework or something. And like, how do I how do I make that happen? Uh, I, again, that's one of the great things about you um, is that you're, you just worked your way in and, and you went for it. Um, so basically, you navigated in a sense. You, you you knew you wanted to do something. You had these skills, mechanical, engineering skills, and you just kind of navigated. And it's like, okay, I want to build a rocket. I've got to start my own company, and and then off I go. Um, what would you be telling today if you, if you were talking to yourself, who's sitting out there? There is there is a Peter Beck or an Amy Beck or a you know Muhammad Beck or whatever sitting out there in the world. What would you tell them right now? Just go and do it. I mean, uh, you know, you, you can substitute a lot of deficiencies for hard work. So, um, you know, just just implement a multiple mul- multiple shifts in your life and 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 go and do it. Um, and you know, whether whether it's the space or outside space, find the, find the thing that you're really really passionate about um, because not, it never feels like work if you're really really passionate about it. Um, and and make a plan, and also be cognizant that that plan might turn ninety degrees on you several times. Um, you know, certainly in, in 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 my case, but I knew where I, where I wanted to be, and I knew where I wanted to get. And and um, uh, I, I look at I look at it very much, you know, Rocket Lab like a game of chess. And you know, you just you you move all the pieces around the chess chessboard to try and create the outcome you want to create. And sometimes you, you take some real risky, risky moves, um, and sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. And then sometimes you'll 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 just literally 
grind on something for years and years and years and feel like you've gone nowhere. Um, but uh, that, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just say find the thing that you're passionate about and um, implement two shifts in your life a minute as a minimum and just go for it. So one of the things that happens with rocket ship, by the way, I use the word rocket ships when we're starting to talk about reusables because you don't throw ships away, right? <laughs> so there's, there's uh, ordnance, then there's launchers, then there's rockets. Uh, launchers could be anything like one of these slingshot things or whatever. Then there's a rocket, mm -hmm. which uses the rocket equation. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a rocket ship. And then there's a space ship, which stays in space. But no. you're, you're flying your rocket, and it's got to be one of the heaviest, hardest moments in a person's life uh, when you've worked so hard and, and you've got that thing on the pad. And I mean, my God, you've given it a logo, you know, you, you, it's got an identity. It's a creature. It's a living thing. And it doesn't work. It blows up. Mm -hmm. It does an RUD, you know, rapid un, unscheduled, uh, you know, and, and it's just it's gone. And you have to walk into your shop the next moment with all these people who have poured their blood and soul into mm -hmm. it, too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are tears, all of that. What does that feel like for you when you do that? And what do you say? Well, like, well, I mean, you know, uh, it's happened to us a few times now, and, and it, is, it is devastating. Um, and I, I, I hate launch day. I absolutely hate it. I know some people get super excited and, and they're standing there and full of excitement. I just, I just do not enjoy launch day um, because at the end of the day, you, you're, you're flying someone's really valuable thing. Like they've spent equally on their side. They've, they've poured, oh, you know, tremendous amount. And, you know, whether it's a, it's a defense payload, it could be a you know, national security asset, people's lives matter. Uh, or a startup company, and you know, this is this is their one shot. Um, like the the responsibility is is huge, and the responsibility is is not not just felt by me. It's felt by every single person on the shop floor doing every little job. And you know, we we make sure that um, you know every person you know doing doing their their role understands the the magnitude of what they need to achieve and. Um, you know uh, what what the customer is trying to achieve, and and you know our, the the best moment of a launch is one little squiggly line that comes when we separate the payload, and that's an accelerometer response. And that is that little squiggly line is what every single person in this company lives lives to see. Um, you know everything else prior to that is terrifying. That one little squiggly line is, is that's that's the moment that you get a big smile, and and and, uh, and, and that's satisfying moment and i think the 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 adrenaline and and the commitment is so huge that um i think launch is incredibly unique in the fact that if you didn't have a launch at the end of all of this work nobody would do the work because to your point it is it is so demanding it is it is so stressful um but you know the you you get like you see that squiggly line and you get the adrenaline hit and it's like right let's do another one that was awesome um, and and everybody lives lives for that you know, lives for that, that that adrenaline hit because no matter what anybody says um, it's freaking hard and um, it is it like there, there is no such thing as a commodity launch um, and uh, you know uh, you, we watch our, our friends over at SpaceX and and you know they're launching just flawlessly and frequently you know so much um, that is not easy to that is not normal that is extraordinarily difficult to do and um uh and and you know as we increase launch frequency and cadence uh it is it, it just gets harder and harder to achieve it doesn't get easier and easier so um you know i, I hear folks talking about launch being a commodity soon and i'm like man every day you're, you're battling physics with a margin of 1.2 i can't see that being a commodity anytime soon very well said very well said um that squiggly line. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a successful separation and, uh, and off we go. So I'm going to change the pace here real quick at the end. I have a set of mm -hmm. crazy, silly questions I ask people at the end. Um, and uh, you're no different. You're not going to escape this one. Um, so, um, <laughs> so you're flying, ooh, in your case, in your case, you're flying over Venus. Mm-hmm. 
several thousand clicks. You're just rocketing over Venus and you're looking through the colors of the mist and this and that and the other. What would you be listening to? Oh, that's a good question. At that point, given that I would be terrified, um, probably a bit of Smashing Pumpkins. All right. I love it. I love it. Um, what is your, um, was there a, a, a favorite science fiction book or something that helped propel you into this? What would your favorite science fiction book author or author not, or both? Well, I mean, not, not, uh, not, not really a book, but 2001 the Space Odyssey, I think that was, a, that was, a, you know, uh, a, a movie. And I guess it was originally a book, but um, yep. that, um, that, that was, that was a huge movie for me because I think it was, it was, it was a space film or, or, or book that was actually scientifically accurate. Um, you know, the no sound in space and, and, you know, a, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, you know, movies. I've got one of those guys that's a stickler for accuracy. So, you know, when I see an engine running in space and it's roaring, that's like, ah, the whole movie's ruined for me. So 2001 Space Odyssey, I think, was, you know, was definitely the better. Well, aside from the fact that I am an, I am personally an easy lay when it comes to film, I, I just let myself go. Um, but uh, you can't see it on the on the podcast, but I have my... Oh, yeah, yeah, you can see it. Yep, there you go. Signed. Yep signed by my uncle arthur we used to call him actually was a friend of mine um and um it, it has a little arrow going to one of the rooms in the rotating and it says rick meet me here arthur <laughs> absolute track like i would grab that if this place burned you know, so. yeah 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 um but uh i'm right there with you and uh people who watch it today um don't get it because they're, they're jaded they've seen so much stuff but at the time mm. nobody had done anything like that mm. and and mm. Stanley Kubrick. And by the way, I do tell people this. Um, it's one of the only, usually when people read a, uh, or doing science fiction, I say, read the book first. I'm sorry, see the movie first. Mm. It acts as a trailer for the book because you can never put the content, um, mm. you know, that you would have in a book except for 2001. The only exception I know of because there's so much where they're just playing music. If you mm. read the book first, you kind of know what they're thinking and, and what they're talking yeah. about. So just a little side note there. But I love that. We are simpatico there my friend um and so a non-fiction book is there a major non-fiction book you would uh, recommend oh look i mean I, I just i just you know consumed uh all of all of i could uh the, the nasa nts server i just consumed growing up um but probably you know sudden um rock of propulsion elements uh is 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 definitely um i think everybody should have a copy of that on their bookshelf there you go there you go. That's one of the probably more obscure, obscure to a lot of people and yet central to, mm. to space engineers. They're going, of course, of course, of course. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a TV series show that you like uh, currently in science fiction? To be honest with you, I don't, I don't really watch much TV. I don't really have time. So okay. it's, it's kind of a standing joke here um, at Rocket Lab is, is, is I'm kind of, you know, semi social outcast because everybody will be talking about, um, you know, various, uh, various kind of, you know, shows and stuff that are going on is have no clue. Um, so that's valid. Uh, yeah. And no, I, I really watch almost no television, no movies at all. Because I don't have time. No, I'm kidding. It's I totally, no time. Totally, totally get it. I, um, I run, I'm like bathed in it, uh, you know, all the time when I'm writing and working and stuff, but that's just, mm. it's like background noise for me because I have no other life, no family. So look, um, again, we, we touched on this a little before, but you know, we are at this moment in time where, where humanity is, is, I like to make the point to the people, to people when I do my lectures that there's the same technology, the same engineering mindsets, the same sort of technical culture that has put us in this place of being able to destroy ourselves is the one that can lift us out there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's right now. It's people like you that are, that are making that difference. I'll just ask you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, I think your point is exactly right. I think we're at a really, really interesting time in human history where the planet is, is completely connected. Um, and, you know, we, we've identified threats to our, uh, you know, existence more accurately than ever in history. Um, and 
but yet we're we're still incredibly different. And when resources become scarce, we we divert to the caveman almost instantaneously. Um, so although we've come really really far, um, we've got a long long way to go yet. Absolutely, it's a little bit of gonna... a grim, a little bit of a grim way to end, but but that's that that that's the honest truth. No, we have a long way to go, and Rocket Lab is going to take us there. There you go. See, we just flip it around, man. Um, no, you guys, you're doing amazing work, Peter. I, I think you're an inspiration. Um, and and again, we've hung out a little bit. Um, I find you to be very, a very humble, very real person with a uh, with a, a very uh, how would I put it, uh, cheeky sense of humor, as my mom would have called it. Um, <laughs> And, and I love that too. And, and I just, uh, you know, want to say thank you for, for coming and, uh, spacers, we are out the airlock. You've been listening to the space revolution podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of IROC space radio. Go to IROCSpaceRadio.com for more.